This is Time Enough, episode two. And we're speaking to a lady called Renee Randall Hansen. And Renee, um, I've, I've been friends with you on social media for a while, but this is the, f- the first time we've ever met. And I think the reason why I asked you to come up is because of, well, first and foremost, your story of how you've come to be on the Isle of Man and, uh, and and what you've been doing since. So you've been here for just over a year now, I think it is. Well, um, first of all, thanks for asking me to come up here and talk about my experience on the Isle of Man. Um, I actually, my first time I came here was in 2014, but I was only able to come a couple of weeks at a time due to work requirements and the small amount of vacation that you get from American employers. Um, But then I retired from my job at the end of 2017. So I came over for several months in 2018, and then I was gone back to California from January through March, and then I have been back since April 3rd. What brought you here then? (laughs) So I am one of those Americans with Manx heritage. So I was brought up ever since I was a little girl being told that I was Scotch, Irish, American Indian, and Manx. And of course, I was completely intrigued by what is Manx. And so ever since I was a little girl, I was flipping through the encyclopedias, finding just the little tiny paragraphs that talked about the Manx cat, about the heritage of the Isle of Man. So uh, when I was finally able to, uh, with work commitments and family commitments, finally able to come over and experience it, I did. And I just fell in love with it. And I plan to come back every single year if I can. What is the the family connection? Do you know much about your genealogy? I I know a little bit. I'm um, actually signed up for a class at the Manx Museum in a couple of weeks that will help me research more. But my father's side of the family Um, His great-great-great-something-or-other grandmother was a Wade, W-A-D-E, and um, they were part of that big crew that came in about 1820 to 1840 um, to Ohio and other places in America. And she married a Randall, which is um, my dad's family. So I've been able to... Uh, with the help of um, cousins, older cousins that were very interested in genealogy in America, I've been able to get it back to 1700. And of course, I want to get farther back than that while I'm over here. But it's been amazing because I've actually been able to go up to Jerby to the church and touch the the fountain that my great, 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 five times removed grandfather was baptized in. And we just don't have that kind of history how in America. Did, how did that feel to be able to amazing. do that? Isn't that funny? Um, it felt amazing. I, it's hard to explain, but when I, when I first came over in 2014, I took the plane into Dublin, the ferry across. And when I got off the ferry here, I just felt at home, which is funny because I'm from California and the weather couldn't be any more different. But um, I just felt at home. And then um, going up to Jerby and going to some of the um, churches, the Lazare Church and some of the other areas up there, it's just kind of an incredible connection feeling That's really makes no sense. But um, no, I think it does, and I, I think it's um, it's something that seems to be prevalent within 
families and people who grow up in societies, certainly, let's say, you know, that were established in like the colonial period or just pre-colonial period, because, like you say, there isn't that that connection to the real distant past within a place. You've got maybe a hundred, two, three. Possibly 400 years, if you're lucky, of of heritage in the United States, haven't you? Right. Um, That's true. And what I I have found with um, even some of my own relatives on both my mother and my father's side, there are some folks that are really interested in going back as far as they can to kind of see what made us. And then there's other people in my family who think, this is me right now. This is my generation. These are my children. This is my life. And um, just kind of melding the two together and going back and talking about my stories and um, giving the folks that have a Manx connection away from America to sort of experience it through me. That's why I'm so active on social media with both Facebook and Instagram is and I'm trying to revitalize the lost art of postcards and letter writing. So <laughs> I may be single-handedly keeping your post office in business right now. <laughs> well, that's very much appreciated if that's if that's the case right now. So you, you were saying there that um, the Wades, they went over to Ohio in that sort of period, 1820s, 1840s. Now, Ohio, as we're pretty aware here on the island, was almost like a hotbed. That was that was where the Manx seemed to go, certainly in, initially, wasn't it? Yes, and I'm not exactly sure why. Um, I, I, I'm sure there's an answer to that, just like um, many other um, groups, like the Irish and the Italians, many went to different parts. Um, you find big factions in Boston, Pennsylvania, New York, and for some reason there must have been some kind of a family connection. Um, my family, the Manx, were farmers, and Ohio is... Um, pretty much the Midwest. Um, yeah. And the, and for generations after they came to America, um, they continued to be farmers. I have an uncle um, in Minnesota who was still a dairy farmer. So um, that was really, um, I think, the reason that they went to the areas that they, that they started in, at least. And then, of course, you know, America's very big. And so they were able to branch out from there. My, uh, a section of my family went up to Michigan. There's a lot of um, my Manx relatives went to Michigan. And then um, slowly they went west. Because uh, Ohio as well, the the location of the North American Manx Association. Have you had much contact with that association in the past? I, I am a member. Right. I get the newsletters, but I haven't been able to go to any of their functions. Um, but I do like following them on social media because they're always setting up their um their tents and going to festivals and keeping this um manx heritage alive across america and i think they come over here at least once a year yes. don't they for the awards around july time i think as well there's, I, I, there's usually know, a representative that comes i think i remember that they were across last year for sure um so you're saying that you're Part the part your part of the family eventually headed west the old yes. manifest destiny I, I suppose actually my um, family in the in the Randall portion um, that married um, Nettie Wade 
um, went up to Minnesota. And then my, and they stayed there for a long time. My dad, my father, was actually the first one to go across to California. And that was because he was in the Navy and ended up meeting my mother. So my dad's from Minnesota. My mom's from Texas. So you have the real north meets the south um, relationship they met in California. And that's where I was raised. Okay. So yeah, it's, re- it's relatively recent and this, yes. this move. And um, whereabouts in California did you end up? So I'm originally from a really small town called Ione. It's spelled I-O-N-E. It's east of Sacramento. It's Gold Rush country, Sutter's Fort, um, Sutter Creek, the Argonaut Mines. Um, And Ione was a little supply town that um, was booming back in the minor 49er Gold Rush days. And it's still a really small town. We just recently had a wagon train come through. And um, there is still a working gold mine up in Sutter Creek. And it's just a wonderful, beautiful little place to grow up. And it was a great place to raise my kids as well. How has it sustained itself over the years then? Because I I guess there will have been some drop off from that initial gold rush period. Yes, that's a really, really good question. Um, Well, part of so Ione is in Amador County and Amador County um, is east of Sacramento, and Sacramento is the capital of California. So you do have a lot of people that commute. Um, And with the prices for housing going up so much in the Bay Area because of the dot-com boom, you have a lot of people that'll commute down there. Ione has had a juvenile facility, a state juvenile facility, um, since about 1860. And then in the 80s, during the prison boom in California, where they were building, building, building prisons, they built a prison in Ione. And a lot of people work at um, the prison. It's called Mule Creek State Prison. Is this where you spent your time? Um, I did actually start my corrections career at Mule Creek um, State Prison back in the late 80s. And then... um, I worked total of seven prisons when I was working in corrections. And then when I retired, I was actually working for the Office of the Inspector General, which is the oversight agency for the California prisons. Can you tell us a bit about your experience working within the well within the American correctional facilities system? Because it's it's something that we see within Britain, I guess, within Europe, and it's very much a different model to a great extent as well. Um, I, th- I think something that has maybe come in more within places like Britain in recent times is greater privatization of these things. But that's something mm. that's certainly been much more prevalent in, in the States for, for a longer time, right. isn't it? Um yeah, it's a it's very interesting the American correctional system. I am not an expert on it and here's the reason why. The difference between the big difference between the UK and the American system and actually it's both based on the same um penological um setup from way back when and we both still pretty much follow that um model of um corrections of punishment and rehabilitation. But in America, (laughs) we have our federal prison system. So if you um, commit a crime against the federal law, you go into the Federal uh, Bureau of Prisons. And then we have 50 states. And each one of those states has their own laws, has their own um, penal systems, has um, their own level of determining whether or not they want to privatize and go that route or stay all public. 
And then we have all the counties in California that have their own um, jail systems as well. So I can talk to you about California. Please do. I mean, it's funny you <laughs> hearing you uh, speak about these these different terms because such is the, the prevalence of, of, of American music and the themes that are used in so many songs can be prison-based and people down on the sure. look and all this sorts of things. So you hear things like the county jail, you know, the state prison, this, that and the other. So it's interesting to hear you talk about it. And actually, I guess if I'd really thought about it, I could have come to these conclusions myself. But sometimes when you hear them mentioned in things like songs, they just they just become like a lyric or sure. something like that. You don't sure. fully consider what it actually means. So it's interesting to hear you properly lay this right. out for us so tell us a bit about your, your experience within california it's, then. it's kind of funny that you say that because um if you work in california corrections um we have Folsom prison which is um just north of sacramento so we all know Folsom prison i've worked at Folsom prison so of course you think about johnny cash and his Folsom prison blues but we always laugh because in his lyrics he says he shot a man in Reno. Well, Reno is in Nevada. So Johnny, how did you end up in a California <laughs> prison? But we still love the song. <laughs> well, again, yeah, I've, I've heard that song numerous times and it's never occurred to me because like you say, that that doesn't really make any sense, but it shows you just how powerful a, a sort of a story imagery. or a narrative can be, imagery can be, without actually necessarily having to be correct. Absolutely. No one probably thinks any less of that song, even when they do find right. that out. Although maybe someone, some within the, the prison system do. No, or... we still love it. We just kind of think it's an inside <laughs> joke, you know, that we know about. So now all of you know as well. <laughs> <laughs> and then and, and then San Quentin is his other sure. famous one, isn't it? Yes. That's down, is that Texas way? No, that, San Quentin Cal- is actually in California. It was one of the original 13 prisons it's in marin county it's got a beautiful view just north of san francisco yes ah, okay yes right, right, right. um see. it's where our death row is so if you are or our condemned um facility uh is in san quentin there's about oh gosh i think there's almost 800 inmates that are on condemned row and actually just recently our new governor gavin newsom has put a moratorium on the death penalty in california so while he is in office, they won't carry out any executions, which is causing a lot of, um, in California, we have a very diverse population. We have Los Angeles and San Francisco, which are very left-leaning liberal. And then we have a lot of, I mean, we are the most highly populated of all 50 of the states. Um, So we also have a a very um, um, prevalent conservative group as well. So right now in California, we have some folks that are um, really happy with the new governor's decision, and then we we have others that um, think that, <laughs> you know, for the victims of those crimes and those family members, that um, it's really not fair to them. So that's kind of where, where we're at with the um, death penalty in California right now. Because... Prior to this new governor, you'd had uh, Jerry Brown for, yes. for quite a number mm-hmm. of years. Who yes. I, I, I've always been amazed by his career. Uh, how, yes. One, one, how long it's been. Yes. The way that he he's had these two very influential periods and quite long periods as California governor, but, but separated by an enormous amount of time in between. Absolutely, but he always stayed within public service. I mean, he was attorney general for California. He was mayor of Oakland, California. So he has 
dedicated his life to public service in California. I mean, his father was governor of California before him. And now um, it'll be interesting to see. He says he's retired to his ranch in Calusa County, but we'll see if he really um, does retire or if he stays involved in politics. Because he's about 80 years old now as well, uh, isn't he, I think? He's in his 70s. I, I'm not exactly yeah. sure how old he's, he is. Reason, no disrespect, Jerry, but he's, <laughs> he's a good age. Um, so, yeah, so so tell us a little bit about, about your experiences within the, Cal- the California system then, Renee. Um, so I've been really lucky. I had almost a 30-year career, um, and I could have gone longer um, if I wanted to, but I felt like it was time to, um, you know, come to the Isle of Man and see what's going on over here. Um, I started um, in Mule Creek State Prison, and um, I was able to kind of work my way up into other uh, prisons. I worked at Pelican Bay State Prison, which was our supermax. I'm sure that it's been covered on one of your television shows here. So I've lived... Uh, yes, yes, I've seen a program about Pelican before. Um, I think it was, well, I was going to say maybe they sensationalized things somewhat, mm. but um, what was apparent was the, the deep divides within it. So you had the um, African-American population, <laughs> you had the Latino population, and you had a, rather a large neo-nazi white supremacist population as well so our prisons in california are not segregated by race they're segregated by gang affiliation so we have a extremely bad gang problem in the california prisons Um, it's not just california in your east coast in any of your big penal systems there is um gang issues and so for the safety of inmates and staff um, for many, many years, they were segregated based on who they identified with. Within your Hispanic population, you have Northern and you have Southern, you have your white supremacist groups, you have your um, your BGF, your black guerrilla family. Um, Bloods and Crips, I suppose, kinds. as well. Bloods and Crips are street gangs, okay. um, but they have recently, I think within the last five or six years, started to... Um, uh, um, identify within within the California prison. Our gang experts have started to look at both street gangs affiliation and prison gang affiliation. The ones I was talking about are are um, gangs that actually started in either a youth authority or a prison. Oh, okay, right. This is, these are not these are not ones that I've, that I've no. I'm aware of. Right, um, you have Mexican mafia. Um, I, I didn't write them all down. There were seven um, that that were identified. Um, and then within within your white supremacist gangs, you have like the Nazi lowriders. And and, um, and they've recently, like I said, within the last five years, sort of expanded that um, to cover um, more of a realistic view of what the gangs are like in the prisons right now. I mean, we have 35 prisons in California. There's over 100 and I think with inmates and those that are serving community parole, there's over 150,000 um, wow. under some kind of correction supervision right now. And would I be right in thinking that certainly for some of these gangs, when they start up, purely the prison-based ones, is it a, a case of self-protection in there, self-preservation to some extent? Right. I think that a lot of these affiliations will start in the community where they grew up. Um, 
even though the prison gang itself started in prison, they're all in the communities now, reaching back into the communities. Um, and then you are um, targeted, recruited. Once if you come into the prison system, sometimes starting in the county jails, the big county jails like like Los Angeles. Um, you're as much as you want to not be affiliated with a prison gang, you're most likely going to be affiliated with a prison gang. The other thing that really struck me on the programs like this, which I've watched in the past with regards to somewhere like Pelican, is the game of cat and mouse that you seem to have to play constantly where you've got the staff on one side and the prisoners on the other in terms of the prisoners are always trying to work out ways of getting things in or getting things out, right. be they messages oh, or boy, substances yeah. and all these kinds of things. And the way that the staff have to try and stay on top of this, the screening that goes on with all these things. And right. it, it almost feels like you find one way of stopping something. Absolutely. And then the ingenuity of these guys, which <laughs> let's not forget, they've got a lot of time on their hands to be figuring out how to do this stuff. And just the way that it would go back and forth seemed right. from the outside fascinating. I imagine for you guys, it must <laughs> be nightmare. <laughs> incredibly frustrating. Right. Yes, contraband is a huge problem in a prison system everywhere, everywhere. Um, in California, our biggest problem is drugs and cell phones. <laughs> cell phones are a, a big problem. Um, they're, uh, they're constantly, the corrections department is constantly trying to find ways to stop them from coming in or to detect them. I think right now, um, remember I've been retired for a year, so <laughs> um, I think right now they're they're working with technology that will actually jam the signal, so it doesn't matter if you have a, a cell phone or not. Um, it's not going to work. You have, unfortunately, um, visitors that will bring in um, a contraband. You have drones that have dropped in contraband. You have um, in California, California is the third largest state in area. So we have prisons out in the middle of nowhere. And you will have um, people on the outside just drive by and throw over the fence bagfuls of contraband. And then you have a, you have some inmates that will actually escape for, you know, a few hours. Renee's just on air quotes there, everybody, <laughs> by the way. Carry on. That will escape for a few hours, go out and retrieve the bag, bring it back in, hope they don't get detected, um, and then introduce it into the population that way. And of course, unfortunately, there are um, staff that had, can be compromised to bring in contraband as well. Um, and it was, what was the other thing? It was it was sort of like messages as well. That was something that I was really oh, intrigued right. by, where you get these like seemingly innocent letters and postcards, which somehow have codes contained within them, right. which are putting messages back and forth in and out right. of the prison as well. Right. Um, they're called kites sometimes. Kites. Um, right. they're, um, a few years ago, they... So for, for ever since Pelican Bay was built, part of the housing was security housing unit. It's called the SHU, security housing unit. And that's where you had your um, indeterminate sentences. So if you are found to be a member of a prison gang you're locked up in the security housing unit. If you're found to be a shock caller, you were put into Pelican Bay for years. I mean, over 20, 25 years. And then just recently over the last 
four or five years, they've looked at whether or not that was actually an efficient way. Was it actually stopping this gang activity? And um, the legislature working with the management of the department at the time determined that it wasn't. And so what you're talking about, I'm sure it still goes on now, but it was really those shot callers that were writing these very small, um, tiny, tiniest writing you could ever think of, um, or um, coded messages, uh, whether it be on the telephone or in these letters. Now, um, the letters would get read by correctional staff, um, but the ratio of correctional staff to inmates is um, quite low. I mean, when I was working, I think with our correctional staff, peace officers inside and on in our parole, in our outside parole agents, there were about 40,000 peace officers. But that was dropped drastically. Um, so things are going to get through. You're, you're not always going to be able to um, decipher every code and, and um, say they're looking for those messages. They're looking for the contraband. They're looking for the drugs. They're looking for the um, um, weapons. They're looking for all of that. What does working within a system like this and working with people as in you know the inmates what does that do to someone as a person or does it does it depend on the person very much it's a really good question i don't have a great answer for it i started in corrections when i was 22 um, my parents worked for the youth authority um, my ex-husband um, was a correctional officer um, i can tell you that it's not a job for everyone. I've seen people in the job that are just in it because it has an excellent salary and really good benefits, health benefits. Um, you know, we don't have universal health um, like you do here. Retirement, um, the benefits are really good, but do the benefits outweigh the impact? Mm. It's it's not a job for everybody, in, in my opinion. Um, but uh, it was an excellent career for me. Um, I was lucky, I think. Um, I have a very positive attitude to start with. Um, but I do know that I can be a little jaded at times because I've worked around a population that um, are felons. They've done everything in their power. Um, in California, it takes a lot for you to get sent to prison. You either right. did um, an incredibly heinous, violent crime or you've been in the county jail five, six, seven times, and then you finally go to state prison. So by the time you go to state prison, a lot of them, um, they have a criminal lifestyle, and they're going to do everything they can um, to <laughs> keep up that lifestyle. Sure, because I imagine on, on the one hand, for some people, it could, it could make it incredibly difficult for them to not end up feeling very cynical, like you say, jaded, right. almost negative about well, humanity as right. a whole, possibly even. But then maybe does it also depend on how you feel about those people mm -hmm. in there and and their reasons for being in there originally? You know, so it, do you, right. it, does it depend on whether or not you think, well, this person is just a bad person or this person obviously has had a hard life and has had bad things happen to them at some point. And whilst not excusing what they've ended up doing, it can at least make you maybe understand sure. more why yes. they've ended up the way they've ended up. Absolutely. I think it depends on your level of empathy. I think it depends on your level of um, 
interaction with what your experience has been, if you've had a um, very negative experience, if you've been assaulted, you know, all those sort of things. But I also think in California over the last decade, I have, having been in corrections as long as I have, and and I, I work, I'll tell you a little bit about some of the policy work that I did, but you see the pendulum swing back and forth between punishment and rehabilitation. And the last 10 years, the department and the legislature under Gary, under Jerry Brown, Governor Jerry Brown, he really um, wanted to put some emphasis on rehabilitation because these people are coming back into your, into your community. It's funny, when I um, went up and toured your prison and talked to your, your, um, your prison governor, <laughs> That's uh, Bob Bob McCollum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I've heard that he is much more of the progressive school when it comes to this sort of thing. Well, the the interesting thing is, on the Isle of Man, <laughs> you go to work one day, um, and you know everybody. You know those hundred um, inmates that you've got up there because they're your neighbors. You went to school with them. In California, we do everything in our power not to live next door to an inmate that's just paroled. However, they the majority of them are going to parole back to a neighborhood, and they're going to be your neighbors. So the last, um, like I said, about a decade, the governor really wanted to put an emphasis on rehabilitation. So if you are a believer in rehabilitation, um, getting your degree, getting job skills, um, securing some kind of housing, getting a control of your substance abuse issues, if you're a believer in that, then your job can be um, probably easier. Because, you know, there, there is that school of thought, isn't there? If That if you merely punish someone and when their sentence ends and they exit the prison and they're stood there at the gates with, well, probably the stuff that they walked in with. Right, and I think $200 ago, if that hasn't changed. $200 <laughs> and maybe, you know, a sack full of clothes or something. And that's just kind of like, well, there you go. You've done your time now off you go back into the world you know we've that that we've done our bit there you go and sometimes those people don't have those structures no. in place don't have those things to go back to right and so is it the case often then that they do end up reverting Absolutely. to old ways yes yeah. um the recidivism rate in california was astronomical i think it was more than 50 percent uh, i think it was 70 percent would come back and so they the under governor brown they really started looking at whether or not there were community programs um that could help um reverse that because for one thing it cost the um, california taxpayer an arm and a leg to keep them incarcerated over and over and over again um and then what kind of society does that does that leave you with especially society which isn't very keen on taxes to a great extent <laughs> anyway, or certainly the, the, the concept of lowering taxes always seems to be, be a very, very popular policy thing. But um, speaking of policy, you were saying that you were involved with oh, sure. some prison policy. Right. What sort of things was, was um, that? So for the last part of my career, I worked um, for our Office of Legislation. So I was the legislative liaison for the department um, and the California legislature. And then under um, Governor Schwarzenegger, I was one of his point people um, for corrections for his four-year term. So what I really got involved in was working with the California legislature and the, and the various governors on what kind of policies they wanted to see um, in California 
implemented or changed. And we did our best um, to show that show the California legislature exactly what it was that the impact would be on on their various um, laws. Um, so I, that was from there. I went into the office of the inspector general. I was there for about, <clears throat> excuse me, eight years, all told. Um, and what the office of the inspector general does is it's an independent oversight agency. Uh, it's very small. We had less than 100 employees for the entire Department of Corrections, the juvenile system, and the parole system. For the whole of California. For the whole of California. So we really had to concentrate on what kind of oversight we wanted to do. And <clears throat> part of my role was um, executive director of our Rehabilitation Oversight Board, <clears throat> which made recommendations and oversight of the rehabilitation programs. Um, so the Office of the Inspector General, like I said, it's very small. So we would oversee all about one-third of the internal misconduct investigations, the, the most egregious um, misconduct investigations. The Department of Corrections would do their own internal investigation, but we would oversee it to make sure that it was on track, that it was meeting timeframes, and then we would do our own independent investigations and audits as well. It, we were divided into three areas, North, Central, and South. Um, how did you feel the work <laughs> was received? Um, well, the legislature appreciated our work. Of course, correctional staff don't really want an oversight agency looking over their shoulder at all times. But uh, we had an excellent relationship with management because uh, they, for the most part, welcomed what our findings were. Because we were such a small agency, we really did have to pick and choose what we were going to investigate. And we would have a pretty good idea of what we were going into and um, whether or not there was going to be the bang for our buck, to, to for lack of a better term. We did... Uh, sexual misconduct investigations. We did um, um, use of force, excessive use of force investigations. Anytime there was an in-custody death, um, we would do investigations or oversight of those investigations. Um, we'd attend autopsies. We'd put together reports. We'd do special reports for the governor. Um, we would look at particular prisons. We'd look at particular programs um, to see, like, women's programs, we would look at, I mean, we did one report on an entire prison, High Desert State Prison, where there was complaint after complaint after complaint of inmates' rights um, not being upheld. So they they were unable to file their own appeals. They were getting torn up. Um, there was um, excessive force complaints. Um, so just sort of the gamut, just wherever the legislature would get a lot of complaints about. But then we would also look at fiscal things too. Are the substance abuse programs working? They weren't, but they were costing millions of dollars, those sort of things. How much do you think something like the legalization of cannabis yeah. has, how much of an impact do you think that has had on what's happening within the, the facilities in terms of the number of people that are being sent to them and that sort of thing? Uh, I don't. I think it's personally too early to tell. Um, California's still working out its regulations, um, the last I heard. And again, we have 
58 counties in California, and each county um, determines what level of enforcement they're going to do for any of their laws. So you may have some um, counties like San Francisco that won't um, send anybody to prison for a cannabis or a, or a, any kind of drug. I'm not saying San Francisco doesn't, well, but I think it's yeah. much less prevalent than in some of our more conservative counties. So I think that for a long time in California, low-level cannabis-type um, prosecutions aren't happening as much as they may have been in some of the other states. When when you deal with these sorts of things day in, day out, I mean, it sounds like even when you were out of the prison per se and, and working with um, the inspections instead, it still seems like you had a lot of time where you weren't dealing with sort of conflict necessarily, but but, but difficult situations yeah. at the very least. Right. Uh, definitely. For me, it was a stressful job. Um, and so you you figure out how to deal with that stress. And, how, how did you? Um, I have really good family support, um, great friends. Um, I, m- my crew that I worked with um, were fantastic. We would have a lot of meetings. We'd talk about how to deal with different situations, different management um, of different prisons. Um, some would receive us and um, welcome our input. Others we'd get a lot of pushback from. Um, so, and, and recently I think the Department of Corrections itself has started looking at, uh, different ways to help their staff deal with stress. It is is a stressful, it's a very violent workplace. I mean, I just recently saw that they had a, at Kern Valley State Prison in the, in the Central Valley, they just had a melee involving five or six inmates where they had to actually shoot one of the inmates because they just weren't stopping. And think how stressful that has to be for that officer. Um, so the department has started looking at implementing different um, ways of helping staff. It sounds like it's, it could, certainly can be the sort of job for people as well then that um, it's very, very difficult to leave it at the gates, let's say. You know, when you leave right. work that day, yeah. you know, you don't just instantly switch off. I imagine that's very similar for people that work in sort of social care and social work and all, all that sort of thing as well. W- right. Would that be the case in, in well, that Well, that, that is one of the things that they say, right? Yeah. Leave it at the gate. Um, easier and said than done, though? Easier said than done yeah. um, for some people. Um, and, and sometimes you see that, unfortunately, uh, play out with um, domestic violence suicide. I mean, one of the things that I looked at when we looked at our high desert report was the amount of officer suicides. And that was one of the reasons that the department sort of stood up and said, okay, we need to look at this. Um, is it really prevalent? Which it is. Um, it's There's a reason that the retirement age is 50 years old, because statistically, peace officer type um, positions, once you retire, you're 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 going to die within, <laughs> you know, 10 years. And that's just one of the reasons that they put that retirement age so young. And have, like you say, those good benefits packages and, and, right. and the like yeah. as well. It's changed over the past couple of years, but it's still a pretty comparatively generous retirement package for sure. In a, um, in- when, I, when, when I was in, we were able to... Um, retire at 50 if we wanted to um, with up to a 90% um, top out. So uh, you could you could retire with 90% of 
the top wage that you were earning. So you would theoretically then have a, a pension that a you living could, wage. a living wage, sure. a pension that you could very much live on. Um, trying to take a, a positive from this sort of impact, is, is there a, maybe an element whereby it helps you to maybe enjoy? let's say, the simpler and gentler things in life a little bit more to try and find beauty in the, in the, in the mundane or, or something all, like it's that? Gonna, it's going to vary from person Person's to person. person yeah. It's not all bad. I mean, it's, it's, I worked with some of the best people over my career, um, just the most wonderful people, um, and you do end up um, leaning on your partner, on your coworkers. And a lot of people are able to leave it at the gate. A lot of people are able to um, look at what they're doing within the prison system as a positive, making a positive influence, hopefully, on this person that's going to come out and be somebody's neighbor at some point. Um, There's a lot of community involvement. A lot of these prisons in California are built in small communities. Um, And so the number one employer, uh, top employer, employing the most people will be a prison. And so they're the ones whose kids are out there at Little League um, Baseball. They're the ones who are raising money for, you know, the person who has cancer. I mean, they really, um, some of these communities really um, have an, a good impact from having a prison there. Almost like, you know, at times in the past where you would have like a factory town or sure, a mill yeah. town or something like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Of course, yeah. Um, and you're saying about the positives. And do you ever get to hear the good the good news stories about former inmates, the people that do turn their lives around and go on to do good things as well? Sure. One of the um, things that I enjoyed when I was working for the inspector general was when we would go and we would do our audits of the rehabilitation programs are vocational programs. So those programs that are teaching inmates how to weld, they're teaching inmates how to work a computer, they're teaching you how to um, do building maintenance. I mean, we have some excellent programs in the prisons now. And a lot of inmates would write back and tell these instructors about their job, about their housing. And um, they would have these letters and these pictures up on their walls in their workshops. And um, absolutely, um, they derive a, a lot of um, pride from the programs they're delivering. I read um, Wayne Kramer's autobiography rel- relatively recently, a former guitarist of the MC5 back in oh, the 60s, yeah. who, because of some rather bad life choices, found himself with, with within the US prison system. And, and that was a really fascinating insight, particularly to, to hear about someone who would obviously come from his background, and particularly because of what he'd been involved in in that band. You know, they were so much more than a group. They were right. political activists, obviously tied up with John Sinclair and the White Panther movements right. and all this sort of stuff. And, and being in Detroit at one of the most well, let's say, combustible times of, of, of the city's history as well. Sure. But, but the way that he spoke about his experiences within the system, I think he was very much one of these people that did decide to use it as a, as a positive thing. And he was talking about like the music programs that he looked to try and introduce as well. Um, I can't remember the specific name of it. Um, I think, I, I know they named it, eventually they named it Jailhouse Doors after a Clash mm. song. Hmm. which I think maybe The Clash had, had, had huh. written about him or, 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 and his experiences anyway. So there, there was this sort of cycle that went within it. But again, that, that idea of him wanting to put something back in because right. it had somehow or other helped him get back onto 
the straight and, and well, narrow. Well, it's, it's funny right now, um, the big movie in the theaters right now is The Avengers Endgame, of course, starring Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. did time in the California prison system because of his drug use. And if you ever see any of his old interviews, he swears that it was finally being sent to prison and the help that he got in prison that was able to kick his drug habit. And look at him now. I mean, he's the biggest star in America. <laughs> and it's something that Kramer said himself. I mean, he, he took a, a number of times after he'd come out to finally get rid of his, uh, his dependence on certain substances. But it's that idea of having to bottom out isn't right. it you've got to you've got to hit the bottom before you can bounce back and it some people could say it's a cliche but you could say it's a, probably a cliche for a reason for some as well that they do have to reach that real low before they can start right coming back and, up. and i and i do i think about robert downey jr having been famous at the time he went to prison and all of the breaks that he had gotten before he was finally sent to prison and that one judge that said no more. You're going. Yeah, wake up and call. Definitely a wake up call. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 very very interesting uh, avenue within it. Uh, that sort of thing. Did, did you did you have any dealings with you know quote unquote famous people sure, in your yeah. in your time? <laughs> famous for the wrong reasons, yeah, like infamous. Charlie, like Charlie Manson. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there were times that I would have to interview um, notorious inmates, um, such as uh, Charlie Manson, who. Um, is just as was just as crazy as um, you would think he was, you know, Charles Manson from the Manson family. So you sat in a room <laughs> with Charles Manson I s- and interviewed him. <laughs> sat across the table from him. And no, interviewed him? no, I stood at his cell door and spoke to him through his cell window. Is that all that was permitted? Um, no, I'm sure I could have otherwise, but there was really no reason to right. put myself in that position. Sure, yeah. um, for for the interview. Um, in California, we have um, notorious inmates that I'm not sure would be notorious to the rest of the world. Maybe. I mean, like the Melendez brothers who, um, Menendez, Lyle, and um, I can't think of his brother's name now. That, they're not yeah, people see, familiar it's to that me. sort of thing. But if we take that, that Charles Manson example, sure. then w- what was it like to speak to someone like that who is obviously so notorious and when when was this that you would have chatted with oh, him oh gosh this is let's see it was probably 2012 2012, 2012. so we're talking a good 40 plus years sure. from when he yeah. first became infamous right. with those uh, tate labianca murders or certainly directing them uh, as he did um so you you're going to speak to someone that has this right Not notoriety notoriety reputation almost this whole all this whole almost like mythology in a way right. surrounding them sure. what, what's that like to come up against something like that and, so, and someone who you you're so used to seeing on television and in news reports and all this that and the other and, and all of a sudden you're you're there speaking to them what's that like um well for me th- the way i look at it is at least i sort of already had an idea of what I was interviewing. When I would talk to other inmates, especially um, some of the gang leaders, all I knew about was what their criminal charges were. I didn't know about their mental health. I didn't know what their um, feelings were towards females. I didn't know any of the background. So I really, um, when you t- when you speak to someone like Charlie Manson, 
that you already have an idea of his level of crazy because he was straight up crazy. Um, <laughs> um, I knew what I was getting into. And so there was no fear there. No. What was the interaction like then? Um, you know, it was pretty lucid, actually. I was surprised. Um, it was not, <laughs> It there was no, what's the word I'm looking for? I didn't really get any new information no. that I was looking no. for. Um, we talked about some of the issues that he was complaining about. Um, so it was very much almost on like a... Um, <laughs> I was going to say something like, you know, uh, patient doctor basis, but that's not what right. I mean. Um, sort of like, you know, the, the person that runs almost like like if you owned a restaurant and someone was complaining <laughs> that their soup was cold or something right. like that. Yeah, right. yeah. It was on that sort of a level. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which I guess in a way must must have kind of normalized things to well, an extent or um, did it put you more at ease that it was just that sort of interaction? Um. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I guess you could say that because it really was sort of trying to get to the root of some of the issues that he was complaining about, um, which we did a lot of for a lot of different inmates. So um, it wasn't as if there was um, an interaction with him where he was aggressive towards me. Mm. Um, so it wasn't like that at or all. Or you were trying to get to the bottom of some deep-seated psychological right. issue or something like that. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And... Um, is it difficult in those situations, be it with someone like Manson or, or a, you know, a regular common or garden prisoner, that it's difficult to figure out when they're actually genuinely complaining about something and whether right. or not they're just trying to well, cause a bit of trouble, I suppose, kick up a bit of a fuss for no other reason than just, well, devilment, let's say. I think know? that there's, for me, I was always going to listen. I was if I if we if I received a letter that I was going to be looking into about a complaint, I would listen. I would not go in there with an attitude that they're lying. I, I knew staff that the first thing they thought was, "You're lying." Change my mind. Mine was, "Let me hear it, and if there's any evidence to support it, we'll find it and we'll address it." It sounds like that's probably a much more logical or, or certainly honest way of doing things because well you, you're being you're remaining open-minded until right. you have to think otherwise whereas right. the other approach is you're starting off close-minded sure and having to, asking found, someone to yeah. try and prize it open aren't you i found it worked much better for me that way okay let's move out of, of well, the prison out of prison yeah is that okay for you <laughs> absolutely yeah, okay good because we've been in there for about 40 <laughs> minutes or so now and it, it's fascinating like i say to have that sort of personal first-hand insight of that sort of thing but i don't just want to talk to you about prison because obviously you made this choice upon retirement to i did come here and to live a manx life and <laughs> uh, you've been here for over a year now so um as an uh well i think i think we still have to call you a come over at this time oh, definitely. I'm, I'm afraid <laughs> renee uh, one year doesn't qualify you for no. stopover status or stayover status yet but uh how have you found it then actually coming here to live within the manx community rather than just dipping in and out right. of it as you have done previously because because uh, judging by your social media you've 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 dived deep here you know yeah so i like I said, when I first came here in 2014, I just fell in love with it. And I, when I would have to get back on that boat, and I know there's one in the morning, so I'll watch what I say, <laughs> um, or I'd have to fly back home, I wanted to spend more time here. Um, and so 
I told myself when I retire, I'll spend six months on the Isle of Man and six months back in California. I mean, I have two grown daughters back in California and all my family and friends. So that's what I set out to do. Um, I rented a place in Castletown, which I love. I think I am in Castletown at the perfect moment. There's a lot going on in Castletown. Um, and it's funny because in Ione, we have a castle, Preston Castle. I read about this earlier today. Was that, that was the correction, youth correctional it was a, facility. It was a youth it? correctional facility. Yeah. And now um, it's supposedly haunted. They've made a couple of Hollywood movies about the Preston Castle. They do tours oh. of the castle. It's beautiful. Um, it's really a cool place. Um, so now my town on the Isle of Man has a castle. Which before the Victorian prison on was Victoria Road prison. was the prison. Yes. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I have a bus pass. I take the bus everywhere. And the Manx people can thank me for that because you do not want me driving on your little roads. Um, last year, I took a driving lesson just to get used to it um, from Dave Corlett. I don't know if you know him. He just recently won one of the rally um, races. Um, yeah, I know off Dave. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he was he was great, really patient with me. But after that, I decided, well, you know, maybe I'll rent a car here and there. But um, your bus system is fantastic here. So I just bought a I buy a monthly bus pass, um, and I plan out my my days based on that. I love your walking trails here. Mm. Um, I try to walk as much as I can. Getting used to it, um, I will follow a footpath. And then I can't find the footpath signs anymore. Yeah. So <laughs> luckily people are nice and tell me, you know, which direction to go. And thankfully in a, on a small island like this, you're never too far no. from anywhere either. No. You're not going to end up like, <laughs> like say if you went wandering in Southern California and you know, right. something like that in the Mojave exactly. Deserts or something. Exactly. Yeah, it could be quite end different. up in Death Valley. Uh, uh, well, <laughs> exactly. So, so. But then, the- but your weather, I mean, you, I mean, today is the perfect example. It started out raining, then it got gray. Then the sun came out. So I have to plan my um, my walks and my trips hour by hour. <laughs> yes. I think um, some friends of mine and I, we went to um, Austin, Texas mm-hmm. four years ago, I think it was, 2015, for um, a music festival there for Levitation. And one of the things that we were told about Austin, because we, we actually flew in during, I think, the worst thunderstorm they'd had in getting on for a hundred years or something ridiculous like that and they were telling the locals were telling us and this felt very funny to to a manx person <laughs> and you know the weather we have here that there's a saying in austin that if you don't like the weather wait 15 minutes <laughs> you know and and coming from somewhere like the isle of man we could completely identify Absolutely. with that uh, uh, the extremes or the differences would be far right. more extreme, but it's still that thing right. of, yeah, four seasons in one day. Four seasons in one day. California less so, I take it. Well, um, California, if you have a hot day, it's going to be hot all day long and then most likely the next two weeks in a row. If it's raining, it's going to rain all day long. But, you know, we have a much milder climate, although we do have our ski resorts. We have um, we have Olympic-level um ski resorts up at Lake Tahoe. Um, yes, of course. Yeah, so yeah. you can, we're in the beauty of Sacramento in that area is you can go an hour and a half in one direction and be at the beach, hour and a half in the other direction and be on the slopes. So yeah. Skiing in the morning, beach in the afternoon sure. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we've got some beaches here at least. Yes, and- I love it here. I love beachcombing here. 
Oh, do you? Yeah, I like to take the bus up to Ramsey and yeah. walk the prom in Ramsey. They have beautiful sea glass up there, believe it or not. And just walk around, you see all kinds of gorgeous sea glass it on must the be prom. So, it must be so nice for you to be able to just go and explore the island at sort of at your own pace and Absolutely. just find these things and find out what you like and where you want to go and, and all is. these sorts of things. And, and it is a much slower pace of life here. Um, and because I'm retired, I don't have a nine to five, you know, finance job like some of these folks in Douglas where it would be more fast paced. Um, but the the um, lifestyle here is much more relaxed in general, I think. Um, nobody's in a huge hurry that I can see. And it did take me probably a good three, four months to really kind of, okay, slow down. Um, that's, I think that's natural. That's understandable. I think under the under the circumstances. <laughs> what about um, the community aspect of over right. here? And and because I think some people can imagine, you know, coming from America somewhere like California, you could imagine that there's a huge difference. But then you say you're from this small town. Right. I own yes. what eight, nine, ten thousand people, something like no, that. No, no. If you count the prison population, there's seven thousand. There okay. isn't. There isn't even a stoplight in the oh. town. There's no fast food. I mean, it's a it's a legit small town. Yeah. So coming from somewhere like that within a, a vast right. state like California, was it easier for you to identify Maybe. with the, the small community feel Maybe. that we have here? Maybe. Um, I lived all over California, so I lived in. Grew up in Ione, um, but then I lived in Los Angeles. I've lived in, you know, some big cities as well. Um, what I like, I'm not exactly sure even why I settled on Castletown. I knew it had good bus, you know, the now, now since the 22nd, the bus comes every 15 minutes. Yeah. So um, that's fantastic. But I love Castletown. I love being able to walk out my door, go to Radcliffe's, get my, you know, fresh meat. I can walk to the co-op. I can walk to ShopRite. I can walk to get my coffee. I can walk to the gym. You know, I um, I see Jez the Cat, our mayor of Castletown, in the middle of the square. Um, right now, there's a renaissance, I think. I mean, we have the Secret Pizza Company. We have the Garrisons up and running again. We've got some cute little pubs and walking trails. You can just walk out your door, turn left, turn right, Um and and find a beautiful walking trail you can walk to port st mary you can <laughs> it's just wonderful so has it been nice to get away from that car culture of back home let me tell you when i went home in january i put on some serious miles i love to drive i do but i am used to those big wide roads those big american cars um so I, I tried to <laughs> I tried to do as much driving as I could to kind of get it out of my system because now that I'm back on the Isle of Man, it's just that your roads are so small and I did not grow up that way. I mean, you've got some fantastic drivers on this island. I, I more power to them. I just give them all the credit in the world, especially the bus drivers. A lot of us locals would probably beg to differ about the, the <laughs> well, quality of, course. of the sun driving. <laughs> well, no, you're not wrong, actually. I mean, how those guys get those big buses double deckers through through that little narrow bit between the castle and the glue pots and things like that it never ceases to amaze me me. (laughs) because they just swing it through fearlessly obviously because of um years of experience i imagine but still it it makes it it makes it no less uh impressive what's it been like to um integrate yourself here find friends and and, and that sort of thing i was really lucky when i came in 2014 i met a really great core group of friends that um that i've maintained till now i am 
a loner. Not, not, I mean, I am, I do a lot of things by myself because people work. <laughs> Everybody still has jobs um, over here, obviously. And so I do um, go out and do a lot of things on my own. Um, and there's so much to offer here. Uh, you have great um, heritage sites, your Manx Museum always has something going on there, usually for free or a few quid, as you say. Um, <laughs> and a lot of local music. I love all the all the stuff that goes on at the Gaiety. And on the little pubs are starting to, or not, or I don't know if it's new or not, but live music is just seems to be happening a lot. I think it's coming back a bit more. It has been in certain, certainly certain types of live music. It's been somewhat in the doldrums for a few years, mm. I think, because... The number of venues that we have, suitable venues for gigs, has has declined. Uh, you know, there have been a number of pubs which haven't existed for five, ten years, which very much used to be, you know, the sort of the core the of a scene. Right. So even the building down the bottom of Douglas Head Road there, the Trafalgar, which is now a house, I think it's called Trafalgar House, for years and years was the oh, Trafalgar Pub, and gotcha. that was, you know, one that certainly when we were growing up and people a little bit younger than me that were in bands that was a key one for them um there was another one just in town which is now offices just opposite the salvation army called the corner house which Uh. was very very good as well so a lot of those sorts of places have have gone and and, and there was a bit of a decline but um i think one way and another right it is coming back and and particularly what you were saying about castletown i think you've come into castletown at a nice time when there does seem to be more life coming back into the town i noticed that you've um You've thrown yourself into other things as well, like the marshalling at the TT, was that? Oh, like, I marshaled at the yeah. Manx. Oh, that the was Manx. fantastic, Sorry, right? Manx, um, I I don't think I'll marshal at the TT unless there's a call out for a need for more marshals, but marshalling at the Manx was a fantastic um, experience for me. I've never experienced anything like that. Road racing is not a thing <laughs> in America. I mean, obviously the TT nowadays with television um, has become extremely popular, but we don't have anything that's the same. And being able to go up to the Black Hut and um, be in the middle of nowhere and with a great group of fellow marshals, some with a lot of experience, um, some from other countries like me. Um, and I learned so much. And they're, that, that core group was just so professional and really just had the best um, intentions for those riders. And luckily, you know, I didn't have to encounter an incident. But um, it's just um, marshalling was a great experience for me. I may marshal at the Southern. Um, they've had a call out. so. And just down the road from yeah, you as well. Yeah, I love so. that. I love that about Castletown is they have that Balown course that is just a great little course that has these world-class riders that come and compete there. It's amazing. Did you have an interest in motorbikes and motorsport before you came here? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, my dad was a gearhead big time. Um, so I, my uh, being a being a petrol head <laughs> um, with uh, Ford Mustangs growing up, um, much more on the uh, muscle car side, on the car racing side, drag racing to be specific. Um, but yeah, I love uh, I love that smell. And I love that sound, and I love the speed. Tell us a bit more about how you how you grew up with it then. <laughs> so my dad um, restored cars. Um, my cousin raced cars. He was always modifying it with nitrous or taking it down to the Sacramento Speedway. Um, 
And so I would just go along. Um, we drove incredibly fast everywhere we went. I got out of more speeding tickets than I should have when I was um, <laughs> a teenager growing up. Um, and then um, I would just go and spectate as much as I could. We were really lucky in Northern California. We have some great speedways. And then um, I was never into NASCAR. That's not, uh, I mean, huge. NASCAR is huge in America. But where I grew up, um, there wasn't a NASCAR stadium. It's much more prevalent in the South um, it's, and the East. Obviously, it's grown more. But um, there was drag racing that you could go see all over California or Las Vegas or anywhere. And you're talking about uh, 70s muscle cars. I think there's something, there's really something about those cars from that period that is, it's been a huge attraction for many people, I think, across the world, really. Yeah. There's just something about the, again, the design and, the, like you say, the sounds and the, the smells. It's just it's so intoxicating, isn't it? Absolutely. It, at least it was for me. And I don't know if it was because I grew up with it. I don't know if I would have loved it anyway. I think I probably would have, but I grew up with it, so... And uh, like van van culture at all was that was that a thing around where you were you know, uh, having the the vans where they have the, you know oh. people had it all painted down the sides and the shag, were, shag carpets they, inside and they all were that. around I think my um I think my sister one of her boyfriends had one of those uh, <laughs> Chevy vans yeah, and yeah. yeah they were definitely around and have you ever owned a, a muscle car of any sort or anything sure like my that, first yeah. car was a '66 Mustang fastback signal flare red not orange <laughs> that's a pretty beautiful car to have yeah. as the first one yeah how was that it was wonderful it was great yeah i was extremely lucky and then from there i had 82 mustang fastback and um, that was a beautiful maroon color um fast too fast for me at the time but hey <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah so in the, the motorbike side of it then that that came beforehand uh, my dad had so, motorcycles. Yeah. I um, I loved being a passenger. I had boyfriends with motorcycles. I eventually took lessons and got um, my motorcycle license, but I don't have a motorcycle at the moment. When did you become aware of the of the TT? I had heard of the TT when I was a kid. Um, I didn't know what it was. Just when you would read the little blurb in the big encyclopedia, it would talk about the TT. Uh, um, and then as... Uh, I grew up and and you start getting introduced to YouTube and some of the different um, medias. Um, that's when I really started to understand what the TT was all about. And I knew I had to go see that. Um, any of the Irish road racing and then the TT is sort of like the granddaddy of them all. And being able to come see that in 2014 um, just blew me away. It's, I I love the TT races and the Manx and all of that open road racing you do over here on the Isle of Man. What was your initial reaction to seeing it live for the first time? Where were you when oh, you gosh. first saw it live? So I, uh, the first year I watched practice in a few different areas. I think on senior TT I was up at Kronkivati, Um and I have some great video um, really fast video, you know, um, and some, some really good pictures from that time. But my, just, just the speed and you can actually feel the breeze. You can feel the wind come off of those machines. Um, 
And it's just such a blur. And then going up to the paddock, there's nothing like the yeah. going up to the paddock and just talking to these racers. And it was fun. I made it a point to follow the American racers because there's only a couple. Um, and then I would have some kind of a connection back. And so you go and you talk to these guys and you talk to these superstars and they're just so down to earth and um, so into the racing and so into their bikes and their teams and um, there's just nothing else like it that I've encountered. Were you ready for that uh, sort of real, because it's very visceral, isn't it? When you do see it first off, and especially if you're close up, like you say, when you don't just see the bike whiz past, but you feel it as well. You do. You know, and my favorite thing about being in, in those fields with church ladies making you scones and you know it's such a part of the culture over here at every age I would love seeing the families with what I call TT babies with their little headphones on um, out there in the fields watching these races that they're just going to be raised with what a what a fantastic way to grow up it's it is pretty great in that respect. It, it was funny for me. I don't come from a family that are particularly into motorsport or anything like that. Um, I had friends who were into it when I grew up, and I appreciated it. I think to a point, but I was right. never really fully, you know, involved in it until I came to work here. And then it was only when I started working here that I truly began to really appreciate just what went into it and how, just how especially was so it's it's always interesting to hear you know uh, the take of someone that comes over and and, and experiences it uh, and it's great to hear that you want to get involved down at at Balloon as well because I mean all of all the people that work in it you know are are, are great but that crew down at Balloon there's something really special about those guys and it's so it's so personal because then they have the award ceremonies right in the square um, for all of those uh, Balloon races, and it just feels like you're you're on to something special down there in Castletown with that Balloon because they really bring it to their little community there, and um, and it's 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 pretty incredible. Yeah, it's, it's like you were saying before about you know the, how the community. It sounds a strange thing, but how you know the prison can be involved in the community in, in ah, those instances yeah. in the states it, again it's that thing that brings everyone together right. everyone is involved with it everyone is invested in it to some extent or other and it shows i guess again just how how people do and can come together over these things absolutely yeah. yeah um do you think then that you know castletown was a was a good choice for you when you came over castletown was a definitely um a, a great choice for me it just felt right um, it's where I wanted to look, and then I was able to rent a place that I love. Like I said, it's walkable to everything. And um, getting on that bus, if I want to come into Douglas, um, the late bus is run. So if I want to catch something at the Gaiety or, or, you know, a band playing at the Quids Inn or something, I can do that. What I find great right now about social media is all the Facebook events. I don't know how I would find out about bands etc over here on the Isle of Man if it wasn't for the Facebook events and how good the different um, <clears throat> sponsors and the different pubs etc are about 
getting these things posted. Um, if you can think of a, another way I can find out about stuff going on on the island, I'd appreciate any input you can give me. Yeah, I mean, there are things, <laughs> you know, the risk of a shameless plug, there are things such as like the, the What's On Guide on, on, on Manx Radio's website. But I think you're right, though, in that social media these days, because the places that are are putting these things on or the bands themselves that are putting these things on they're in control so they can they can just be putting this stuff out so more often than not i think you probably are best off using those resources because you're getting it straight from the the source straight from the source from the horse's mouth so i think in that respect it it probably does do you uh, you know a lot of good to go to go along those lines and you were saying when we first started that you know as far as you could tell that the family when they were here they right. were very much based up north. Yes. Was there not the temptation for you to there go is. north as well? Yeah. I love it up there. I yeah. really do. I love taking the bus up to Ramsey um, and walking around up there. I, I do have sort of an affinity for the north. What do you say, down north? Down north, yeah, which down Ramsey. Int- which yeah. is interesting to me. I think it's maybe to do with altitude with rather altitude? than compass points. So oh, okay. you, you, say, for example, if you're going over the mountain, yeah. you know, going on the mountain road, mm-hmm. well, you go down to Ramsey, oh, don't you? Oh, you do. You dip down in. Yeah, yeah okay. Thank yeah. you for clarifying that. <laughs> I, I'm not 100% sure, but I think that that's the sense. reason for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, well, you're right. It is. That's the funny thing about the Isle of Man as well. You know, you can think that it's so small, 35 miles by 15 miles, give or take. But there are so many different little pockets within yes. it, and so many different little landscapes and, right. and things. Last it, year, I was able to go to a couple of the garden shows where the communities open up yes. their gardens. Castletown had a wonderful one. And then up at, um, is it Michael? What is the that area up there? In the north, there is well northwest. There is there's, there's Michael, the parish yeah. of Michael, Kirk Michael. Yeah, and, and that sort up there of area. they had one as well, um, and it's a great it was a great way to see these little hidden gems. Um, and I love the fact that people are willing to open up their gardens to people to come and look at their beautiful flowers and landscaping and yeah. um, some of the walled ones I think in oh, Castletown are very yes. special as well. They really are. Yeah. You don't know they're back there. Yeah. Tucked away until like, you say you, you get that, uh, that opportunity. Um, so it sounds like yeah that you've really sort of fully bought into I try, yeah. you know, island life and, and, and the community and everything. What does the, uh, what does the future hold for you? So, how, how long are you going to be here and, and how is it going to all pan out for you? Well, um, that's a really good question. I, I, I have to always loosely base my plans because I do have two daughters back home. And, yeah, sorry, um, one's, we're not even really spoken about yeah, your family okay. to any great extent yet. Um, I have two daughters in their 20s. My daughter, Allie, my younger daughter, was able to come out and spend three weeks in July. She was able to see some of the racing herself. She loved it. Um, my daughter, Katie, um, is engaged. And so... You know, I may be a grandma, so I I have to think about those things as I make my plans. Um, But right now I'm going to be here through August. Uh, No, that's not true. I'm going to be here through July um, because in August I'm going to go do that cliched thing where you hike the Camino de Santiago. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, So I'm leaving on August 17th to do that. Um, It's a 500-mile hike, walk, walk. I've read about it. I know people who have done it, and um, 
it sounds like an incredible experience. I think, I think you're in for something really special there. Yeah, so I'm really um, trying to challenge myself. That's another reason I love your trails here. It's excellent training for um, hiking the Camino. Maybe not heat-wise, but uh, <laughs> certainly know. distance. In August. Yeah. Uh, you're absolutely right. It's going to be incredibly hot <laughs> in the north of Spain in August. So That's certainly something to look forward to in and that case. And then I'll definitely be back next summer. Um my plan is six months, but we'll see. Very good. Well, Renee, I think coming up to about an hour and 20 minutes, which seems like a, a nice time maybe to, <laughs> to stop and, and release you from this. Thank uh, you. Thank because you. despite the fact that you weren't too sure beforehand <laughs> about whether or not you'd have something to speak about, I think we've done pretty well there. Um, what I asked John Caldwell when he was my first guest um, before he left, and I think I want to ask everybody on, on this podcast before they leave, is um, you know, with all your experiences in life, all the things that you've done so far, what sort of little bit of advice would you give someone, or what what was your takeaway been from it all about how how you should try and live? Let's say, um, if that's not too difficult and deeper no, question to finish on. You mean live my life overall, or, or just for anyone? Yeah, right. how how do you think is it? How do you think is the best way to try and be and try and do things? Right. Um, I would say. Th- that um and what's important let's right. say as well that sort of thing you know right um i would say the way i live my life and if i was to give unsolicited advice to anybody is to start from love you know um when you're dealing with people when you're dealing with situations start with love and go from there um you don't have to empathize with other people um you don't have to sympathize with them. You do not have to put yourself in their shoes. But you might want to think about it. And if you start from a place of love, trying to find what you have in common as opposed to what your differences are, if you can start from common ground, I think um, I think you'll have a good go of it. Renee Rand-Blanderson, <laughs> thank you very much for joining me on Time Enough. Thank, thank you. you.